0: Tundra Talk is brought to you by Frontier Outfitters and Century Hardware, your locally owned source for hunting, fishing, and shooting gear in interior Alaska. They sell proven gear that'll tackle whatever Alaskan tasks you need it to, and Frontier always stays current with gear for the season. Whether you're baiting bears in the spring, fishing, camping, or dip netting in the summer, you're looking for game bags and moose camp gear in the fall, uh, if you need to stock up on trapping lures or just get everything you need to go ice fishing, they've got you covered. They always carry a wide variety of Alaskan-proven clothing and boots, camping gear, meat processing supplies, guns, ammo, reloading and shooting supplies, as well as camping gear and backpacking food. Downstairs in Sentry Hardware, you'll find a full hardware store naturally, and uh, you'll also find your snow machine, ATV, and marine accessories down there. They go out of their way to stock plenty, plenty of quality, useful equipment. And whether you're gearing up for a hunting or fishing trip, working on a never-ending home improvement project, or anything in between, it's usually a one-stop shop. Frontier Outfitters is located on 3rd and Old Steese in Fairbanks, and they have a second location in North Pole, so make sure you stop in next time you need to gear up. This episode of Tundra Talk is also brought to you by Hedgecock Group Real Estate, a local brokerage that can cover your real estate needs in Fairbanks, Alaska. The Hedgecock Group has been tied into the Fairbanks and North Pole real estate market since the early 80s, and their services is tailored to meet the diverse needs of home buyers in interior Alaska. With a brokerage team made up of multi-generation Fairbanks locals, transplants, and military veterans, they really understand the unique aspects of living in the interior and what that means when it comes to shopping for a home or buying land to build a home. They also understand the situations that many military members are in when needing to buy or sell a home. Fairbanks is a unique place to live and whether it's learning why some houses have water holding tanks instead of wells, estimating heating costs, or just what recreational opportunities are close by, they're ready to help. More than simply acquiring or building a piece of property, they can help you find the right property in the right place and help you learn from their experience. If you're looking to buy or sell real estate in the Fairbanks or North Pole area, reach out to Brett Evans and his team of expert realtors at 907 978 Three seven six five or email Brett Brett at Hedgecock <clears throat> <clears throat> <throat> that's how you do it all right welcome back to tundra talk everybody i'm tyler Freel. excited this morning to uh sit down with a guy who kind of i've kind of wanted to i've had you in my mind to get you on the podcast for quite a while uh, mr john sturgeon um if you haven't heard of john he's kind of the uh folk hero here in alaska who uh you know took on the park service and in was it two two times you went to the supreme court over
1: it i went twice that's twice correct, yeah.
0: okay and uh and one and it's you know he's his efforts especially have had a big impact on on just some of the things and issues we deal with here in alaska so i you had the chance to got the chance to sit down with you i you know i'd love to hear because i haven't actually heard the, i've heard your account from other people but i haven't actually heard it from you yet um you know what kind of some of the background and and issues that that go on up here things that go on up here <clears throat> with the feds you know I think a lot of people down in the states don't understand because a lot of lower forty eight states have a completely different relationship with the federal government or the federal agents land managing agencies and uh so yeah, I mean I want to hear you know so some of that background what happened that got all this started and, you know, a little bit about your, just the process and how arduous all that's been. And then, you know, talk about what some, uh, maybe some of the implications of the, of the you know, court decisions and changes. It's, it's kind of helped make a, the state get some headway on. So, yeah.
1: Well, uh, it, it, uh, all started in, uh, uh, been hunting a, uh, a moose uh, in the same place, a place up on the Yukon River. First time I went there 1971, and I've hunted it every year except one. Uh, went there back last year also. Um, in this particular year, I was. Uh, uh, the river I hunt is for moose is uh, fairly shallow. Uh, even with a jet boat, it's hard to get through it sometimes. So in 1991, I bought a uh, little small hovercraft, not very long, about 12 foot long, weighs about you know, 450 pounds, so it's not a big machine. It has a 66-horse uh, Rotax engine on it, and that's what I've been using for moose hunting. I started using it in 1991, and uh, uh, in, in 2007, I was using it. I had just just got there on my moose hunt, and uh, um, I had a cable break on my steering, and uh, just as I was fixing it... Uh, I hear a boat coming up the river a little bit, and, and uh, uh, it turned out to be uh, National Park Service rangers uh, checking things out. They did, did routine patrols, um, and they they uh, stopped and, and talked to me. It was pretty shallow that year. It's probably as far as they could get their boat, and uh, they talked to me for you know maybe 15, 20 minutes about the hovercraft. It's kind of an unusual craft. You don't see it too mm-hmm. often. And they asked if I got moose, uh, uh, you know, how often I got moose and how I packed them and how the hovercraft worked. Seemed very genuinely interested in it. And um, all of a sudden, like you turn a light switch on, they uh, pull out this rule book, and uh, um pretty thick rule book, about an you know, inch and a half thick. And they had it already marked, and there was a uh, read me a, a sentence out of there, one sentence in this big, huge rule book said that. Uh, uh, hovercrafts are not allowed in national parks and preserves and that's something that you wouldn't know intuitively because um it's a, not much different than a, a airboat uh, or a jet boat i mean it does the same thing and uh they uh, uh said that i was in violation of the law and that i couldn't operate that hovercraft and i said well i'm sorry i didn't know it was against the law and then they um uh, said I had to get it out of there, and I said, "Well, okay, I'll, if it's against the law, I'll get it out of there right away." And uh, then they told me that uh, uh, if I started it, they'd give me a citation. So I didn't get a citation, but it was really tough getting it out of there because I had to bring my jet boat up there, and I'd never carried my hovercraft in the jet boats. So As four of us, we had to lift it in there, and then take it all the way back to the, our boat launch, which was about a oh fifty-mile ride, and kind of plowed water the whole way. I think I used about 60 gallons of gas yeah. getting up there because it's, it's all upriver. And uh, we got it out of there. Um, and uh, when they were talking to me, I I told them, I said, I think this is a Navigo River which is owned by the state of Alaska. And they acknowledged that it was, but they said that even though the state owns it, we get to manage it. And I said, I don't think that's right. I didn't have much of an argument with them because I wasn't so sure myself, but when I got back to um, Anchorage, I called the state of Alaska, and they, they assured me that, yep, that was a navigable river owned by the state of Alaska, uh, and at least the state's position was that the federal government didn't have authority on it. So I double-checked with the feds, and they said, nope, the state's wrong. We do have authority on it, and if we we see your hovercraft up there again, we're going to give you a, uh, a citation. And... Uh, so I thought about it a while, and I said, you know, just just not right. Um, and I and, uh, decided to file a lawsuit. But prior to that, I had to, uh, um, you have to, they call it exhaust all your administrative appeals, which takes a long time. you got to send a, a letter uh, to the district ranger. you got to send a letter next to the, the state director and then to the uh, secretary of the interior. And I did that. Uh, none of them ever responded. Uh, and it, you, you've got to wait like you know, a reasonable amount of time, which my attorney said it was about, you know, five or six months. So I kind of lost over a year and a half just going through the administrative process, which you have to do if you don't, and you go to court. The first thing a judge says that, did you try to solve this administratively? And yeah. you're going to say, well, no. But anyway, we did. And we did all right, all certified letters. And then uh, uh, we got into the lawsuit. And it was uh, uh,
0: it was mainly... Now, not to interrupt you, before you get into that, now, it's some detail that maybe, you know, it might be easy to miss. You know, these guys, like, they knew what they were doing when they they didn't just see your hovercraft and come come to say hi, right?
1: (laughs) They were prepared. They were prepared. They uh, um, kind of upset you because they were really nice. They were kind of pumping you for information. I guess that's maybe common to do with law enforcement folks, but kind of makes you feel like a jerk because you kind of trusted them that they they weren't there to give you a citation but in fact they were but they didn't give me a citation so i got to give them credit for that yeah. um and uh, that to me was a pretty big deal because uh you know to take on uh, anybody in court costs a lot of money and mm-hmm. i think there was a lot more appeal to folks to help because it wasn't a citation i wasn't trying to beat a ticket yeah and so i think that was a i think they probably did me a favor in that respect is that it's uh uh just it was just much easier and and uh you know raising money when you weren't trying to beat a ticket that somebody gave you so that was mm-hmm. was, was pretty good and if if um maybe your listeners don't understand what a Navajo river is that's a what a capital N, that's a um uh, kind of a, a, a system that goes back a long long time in fact our original 13 colonies uh decided that they were going to uh, reserve all the navigable waters uh, for the states, not the federal government. And that's a concept that goes back to the kings and queens of England and the, the emperors of Rome, that back in the old and old days, that the rivers and the lakes and the tidelands were all like, the, the, they were the transportation corridors, mm-hmm. and they didn't want uh, anybody to own those transportation corridors, and they were put in what we call a public trust. And the original 13 colonies did that also. So when Alaska became a state, uh, we automatically, under the equal protection clause, got title to all our navigable waters. That's mainly um, the rivers and the lakes, and then uh, from ordinary high water to ordinary high water on the other side, the submerged lands underneath, and the column of water is actually in public trust to the state of Alaska. Yeah.
0: And it's whether and, it, and it doesn't matter if the wa- It's not just what's. On, it's if the water drops, everything below that ordinary high water mark is technically.
1: Right. Like in Alaska, there's lots and lots of big gravel bars and sandbars. Like on the Yukon, you've got some uh, gravel bars because the river's so big that sometimes they're, uh, you know, half a mile long and half a mile wide and some mm-hmm. even bigger than that. And you can land a plane on them. And in fact, uh, very frequently when you hunt moose up here in Alaska, we we um, uh, take your boat and come to a gravel bar and you start calling and a moose comes out in the gravel bar and, mm-hmm. and they're, when they're in a rut. And so I'd say 50% of the moose that I shoot shot over the years have probably been on gravel bars. So it means that if the uplands are owned by the federal government or if they're um, uh, private land, which are a lot of native corporation land up here, if it's a navigable river, you can uh, – and, it, and it's permitted by the state regulations. You still have to follow the state regulations, but they're generally much, much uh, – uh, less restrictive than the than the federal government, but you can actually float down that river. And even if uh, hunting is prohibited on both sides of the river, if a moose steps out or you call them out to the gravel bar, it's uh, you're perfectly legal to do that. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, 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 Alaska, um, like every other state, you know, Montana, Idaho, all their rivers are are the ones that are navigable. The state manages them, and it's a kind of a different concept. It's called a public trust. A, um, you, you can't, you've probably never heard of anybody buying a lake or buying a river. Uh, that's one of the purposes of the public trust is that you, um, it, it's, it's retained in, in public ownership mm-hmm. so they can always be used. That's yep. uh, the navigable waters. So anyway, that's uh, what navigable waters are all about. And it's something that Alaska has, has so many uh, rivers and lakes and about 80% of Alaska's towns and villages have no road access. And the um, the rivers are, in fact, our roads. In fact, the Supreme Court recognized that. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, uh, uh, going back to my hovercraft and going back to the Supreme Court, the uh, um, one of the, uh, uh, I think it was Justice Gorsuch, uh, asked the uh, federal attorney during the, one of the hearings, the last hearing, why uh, they objected to the hovercraft. And... Um the federal attorney answered, Well, they're noisy and obnoxious and they disturb a lot of wildlife, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, Chief Justice John Roberts uh stopped him on, almost a mid sentence and said that well, you, you may think that uh you know hovercrafts are, are noisy and obnoxious, but uh if you're in Alaska trying to get from point A to point B, they're actually pretty beautiful. Yeah. Uh, so John Roberts was definitely on our side. Well
0: in the same thing in that, you know, the same airboats. Yeah. You know, it's the same thing, yeah
1: well, and airplanes too. They're pretty noisy and stuff, but you know, Alaska that's how we got to get around. I mean, you we don't have roads. Uh um there's places you can use uh you know, ATVs and and side-by-sides, but um if you want to really access something, you got airplanes or you got uh um watercraft in the form of airboats mm-hmm. or jet boats or or in my case, a hovercraft, which are kind of unusual, but that's how you get around.
0: Yeah, well, and, and, you know, for clarity's sake, it's not like you can just, a hovercraft, you can go anywhere you want, you know, they operate with just, you know, basically like a boat that's not going to hit big rocks that are right under the surface.
1: Absolutely. In fact, that's a concept that I just could not get the Park Service to accept, because I had communications with them after the lawsuit started, and... They keep thinking or kept thinking that uh, I could take that, that hovercraft and uh, go up the river and just go across the tundra and go up the side of a mountain, come back yeah. down again. But <laughs> it's got to be pretty flat. Uh, in fact, you can't even run a hovercraft in, in like your lawn because it breaks the seal on the bottom. Yeah. So it's kind of a glorified uh, airboat or jet boat mm-hmm. but that you can actually go over things. And uh, you're definitely restricted to the uh, the the river uh, corridor you you don't get you don't get off the river at all it's impossible
0: yeah well and in fact you you know in some ways you know places with big rocks you know under that are in shallow water may be an exception in some ways you can probably do more you could cover more ground with an airboat than you could hovercraft it it all depends on where you're at but i'm just thinking you know there's there's spots where guys you can run run an airboat across tussocks and yeah. all kinds of stuff that yeah. you wouldn't be able to do is just kind of an arbitrary n- and arbitrary nitpicking right type right. of and thing
1: hovercrafts are not real fuel efficient because uh like boats uh airboats and jet boats are kind of sliding along mm-hmm. uh, you're just pushing uh, through the water or across the water whereas a hovercraft that same engine has to lift everything up mm-hmm. and thrust forward so it definitely takes more power, and uh, in certain situations, it's uh, uh, pretty great. But uh, it's also it sucks up a lot of gas.
0: Yeah, no, in and, and navigable water issues, it seems like with the Park Service, can, for as long as I can remember, there's been stuff come up. You know, with their their patrolling and their the rule. You know, the rules they come up they were coming up with. You know, there's the gym, the Jim Wild. Right. <laughs> ordeal, right. in which that got a little hairy, but just general stuff, you know, you hear, you hear all these stories that, well, the, you know, park rangers are running their boat back and forth, right at prime call in time in yep. the evening. And, you know, uh, a buddy, you know, which he'll, you know, <laughs> you know, my buddy Frank has been, had poor interactions with them. I know other guys who've had them digging through their boat, they're meeting their boats in the middle of the night. Right. type of stuff you know just just stuff that's not really above board
1: well i went sheep hunting once and i was uh um they had a super cub and they they flew over us uh, in the morning they flew us over in the afternoon and that's uh when you're putting a stock on a sheep uh that can be <laughs> that can be not be the best thing in the world for and they did it every day for a week wow. um, so it was pretty disturbing i guess they didn't understand that people are hunting there and could have had a little higher elevation, but, uh, we weren't, we weren't real pleased with them.
0: Yeah. You know, so that I'm trying to think of anything else that I'm in that, in that process, you know, you'd mentioned the administrative process. I, I've been through that with us fish and wildlife for getting filming permits in certain areas where it's just there, they, they can give the permit. It's just that they won't, the, the refuge manager, or land manager won't yeah. in some cases. Um, you know, and I, I had to go, uh, they did respond, and I had to go through that process. I think the the one time I'm thinking of I did get a permit, but I had to appeal it all the way to the head for yeah. the state and got on the phone with them and you know explained that this this isn't a- it's a commercial permit, but it's not a commercial operation so to speak that that it falls outside the intent the intent um.
1: Yes, some agencies like the Park Service are—they're they're not, you know, user-friendly. Yeah, I would I'd say the best way to put it. And uh, it's—but uh, 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 I think the when the the, the final ruling from the, the Supreme Court uh, made it real clear that uh, um, any inholdings, which included navigable waters, uh, were off limits to the, the the National Park Service and U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and uh, anything that was established under Nilca. Yeah. Um Yeah, that. Uh, they, fact, the way the Supreme Court put it is that they had to treat it as it was pre-UNILCA. Mm-hmm. And the way they were treating it is that if a in-holding, um, they, if you wanted to, for example, the Native corporations for example, were pretty upset because um, they even had a, um, uh, put out a regulation saying that if there was any oil development on private land within, uh, in holdings within a national park or a refuge, uh, National Park Preserve, a refuge, that they had to get a permit. Uh, and after the Supreme Court decision that uh, went along with uh, saying that was not right, now they, they don't have to do that. So it affected a lot of different things.
0: So they were saying um, private land that sat within a Park Service inholding, they would have to get permits from the Park Service to do resource development on that private land? It was? Uh,
1: pretty much anything. I mean, oh, wow. fortunately... Uh, you know the uh, uh, you go through this process. You went, I went to district court, Ninth Circuit, in San Francisco, Supreme Court, back to the Ninth Circuit, back to the Supreme Court. Uh, but one of the rulings on the, the Ninth Circuit, they, they just kind of went off the rails. They basically said that a park service could manage any inholding. Hmm. Um, in fact, that got the Native corporations really upset, and they were you know they they contributed a fair amount of money to my my lawsuit. Um, and so, luckily, the Supreme Court did an incredible job. Um, they really got it. In fact, my attorney, when we we're all done, said that if he would have had a right opinion, he wouldn't have changed much of anything. And that's a, a pretty good endorsement that, at least from our perspective, they did a pretty good job. And they also really got it. I mean, think uh, uh, the idea that uh, the rivers and lakes were our, our highways. Uh, the Ninth Circuit folks just couldn't seem to grasp that. Uh, in fact, one of the judges on the Ninth Circuit during uh, the oral arguments, um, the state, was, was a partner. state of Alaska was a partner's lawsuit. They uh, said that um, uh, the state said that these rivers were our highways. And one of the judges uh, stopped the state attorney and said, wait a minute, uh, you don't need to take a, 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 you know, a boat from here to there. You can take an airplane if you want to go to your fish camp. And I don't think they realize the uh, the cost of taking a family from point A to point B in a beaver,
0: and sometimes you and sometimes you can't you may not be able to do right, that. right because you a know? lot of you know yeah.
1: these small rivers you can't get a, you can't land an airplane in them but so anyway, it was pretty clear that the Ninth Circuit did not understand Alaska didn't understand our lifestyle um but uh they they came up with a very good decision we had uh um unfortunately we uh the first time went to the Supreme Court. Uh, it was, um, uh, they answered There was a series of questions that, that they, they had to answer. And they, three of them, they didn't answer. They remanded it back to the Ninth Circuit. The questions they did answer, they answered unanimously, which is a real plus. And then um, the, the Ninth Circuit uh, came up with another goofy decision. And um, then you have to appeal that decision to the mm-hmm. Supreme Court again. And a lot of people talk about, I'm going to take it all the way to the Supreme Court. Well, let me tell you. One of the hard, hardest part is getting accepted by the Supreme Court. The last time I went, there were over 8,000 appeals to the Supreme Court. Wow. And the average cost is about $75,000 to what they call a cert petition. That's kind of a petition to the Supreme Court. That's what the lawyers call it. 8,000 appeals. And out of 8,000 appeals in 2019, they took 41 cases.
0: Cool.
1: So your odds of uh, getting the Supreme Court to accept your case are are pretty slim, and it was even slimmer for my case because it only affected one state, Alaska. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes you have these uh, social issues that affect a- across the, the state. And uh, th- this uh, this only affected Alaska. So it was very unusual that they would take our case, and very thankful they did. But uh, the odds of taking your case are, are, are pretty high.
0: Yeah. Well, and that, just the way that <clears throat> system is, makes it everyone everyone talks about oh you know oh fighting fighting the feds on this or that you know it's yeah it's it's no small chore I mean so it's it's I don't want the significance of what you had to go through to be to be lost on people because
1: yeah it was it was uh I say it took a total of 13 years uh the time the, the incident happened and then I thought about it for a while and then uh, you know, going through the administrative appeals process and then actually filing and as I said earlier, district court first, then a Ninth Circuit, then the Supreme Court, back to the Ninth Circuit, filing the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, and it cost $1.6 million. Um, I was very, very fortunate that my case uh, resonated with the people of Alaska, and uh, I, I cannot emphasize enough how how great the people of Alaska were for helping me. They, I don't think I ever asked anybody for any money People just volunteered. Um, They had uh, fundraisers. They had uh, people just sent in checks. And one of the examples I I gave, there was a fundraiser up in Fairbanks on uh, uh, John Binkley's uh, paddle wheeler. And uh, it was pretty well publicized in the Fairbanks area. And there was a a guy from uh, a small village uh, up north uh, who didn't have any cash at all. He said he had no cash at all. He had some furs. And so he sent his furs that were auctioned off, but uh, and sent a note saying that's all he had, but he wanted to help. Um, then we had people with you know that fair amount of money to help. So it was a, it was a kind of all hands on deck effort, and Alaskans really, really came through. And but I think that uh, the end result was is that it uh, was a a real uh, jump for you know Alaska sovereignty uh, mm-hmm. that Alaska got control of its rivers, um, and again. Uh, big deal in Alaska here because almost sixty-six percent of Alaska is owned by the federal government. And down south, um, it's a little bit different. I've talked to people down south; and they kind of view the you know hunting on federal land down there is a little bit different. Mm-hmm. In that, uh, that's one of the few places you can go hunting, but it's mainly Forest Service land, BLM land. Up here, we have it's uh, managed by the National Park Service mainly, and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, which especially the Park Service on preserves. Uh, They, they, they're not very, what I would call user-friendly to hunters and fishermen. Um, uh, So it's a, it's a, uh, you know, it's just a different attitude up here in Alaska. The feds are, are not kind of user-friendly up here, like maybe they are down south. And maybe it's because it's for sure land and be a lamb land and managed by a different agency. I don't know, but there's a big difference.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think a lot, a lot of, a lot of what, we do what hunters deal with in the field as far as these different agencies are a result of who the people that are in position positions in charge you know regionally and i i my my line of thinking is that alaska is a very attractive place to both extremes both people who want to hunt and both people and people who do who are not fans of hunting and want to the the hands-off you know preservationist approach exactly and so i mean i i tend to think that that's where a lot of the source of source of a lot of the conflict is is you know getting a position a position of power over your own private playground chunk of land up here is uh kind of an attractive thing to certain types of people maybe more so than than other areas you know because it just doesn't seem like in other states you know like you're when, you know, I first started hearing about that, uh, like backcountry hunters and anglers, I never, and that's a whole nother story. It's just an organization. I never, it put me at, une made me uneasy how cozy they were with these federal agencies. And part of my, my education is that some states, yeah, that's the best, you know, in some states, that's the, the best place to hunt or the best land, best managed. But it's a different set of issues we, we end up dealing with up here.
1: And I think the other thing that why um, uh, federal land is viewed a little bit differently is that uh, um, in other states there's no disagreement that the states the, the state uh, fish and wildlife managers manage the wildlife, uh, whether it's on federal land or state land or private land. You've got one manager, and uh, unfortunately up here in Alaska, uh, we have seen the the federal government up here, mainly the Park Service and you and Fish and Wildlife Service. Uh, infringe upon the state's authority to manage wildlife. Um, In in fact, in the Statehood Act, uh, the Statehood Compact, and uh, when ANILCA was passed, that set up most of our our parks and preserves, it was supposed to be clear that the state of Alaska would manage uh, the wildlife. And uh, it's it's just common sense because you have a caribou herd that moves across all ownerships Mm -hmm. and they have several government agencies managing a migratory uh, herd of animals, this is an example, is uh, kind of, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't work. But but uh, up here, the federal government uh, has been trying very hard to get into uh, managing wildlife. Uh, they've got restrictions on predator control on their lands. They've got um, uh, different restrictions that, uh, that uh, uh, you know, it, take over usurp some of the state of alaska's authority to manage wildlife and i think that's maybe different here than it is down south because you don't hear that down south like a forest service is going to change the season they're going to tell you where you can hunt predators or how you can hunt them and or stuff.
0: say no you know people from over here can't come hunt here
1: exactly exactly so you don't see that so i think it's uh Um, the federal land up here is, is much more of a concern for hunters than it would be down south.
0: Yeah. And, and that's kind of leads, leads right into, you're actually up here to, to do so because you, you're currently the, the president of the Alaska chapter safari club.
1: That's correct. It's like I always say, I I wasn't at the meeting when they had the election. So (laughs) Next time I'll make sure I'm there. So yeah, I'm president of Alaska chapter of the safari club.
0: Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, we're just at the laundry house game meeting yesterday, um, kind of trying to raise awareness and funding around this, uh, you know, what we were just talking about, this caribou issue in Northwest Alaska. I've talked about it on the podcast several times, and it uh, they finally have announced, which it just seems, this stuff seems to be slid through quietly when possible. And I, I don't know that they were expecting the, the public feedback that they got you know the first meeting especially and then you know they did a second meeting of public hearing and then they're going to do another one that you can call into and I'll post the information on the the notes for the show but um on here on March 21st they're going to do a third one and then the actual federal subsistence board meets on the 30th I think to decide it which is <laughs> it's worth pointing out that I don't know that the actual that the that the board actually has to listen to any of the testimony
1: I don't know all the the details but uh, certainly as far as I know you do not have an opportunity to, to, to interrelate directly with the board yeah uh, they've done it through staff and uh, how staff tabulates the results I don't know I, I listened the first session was uh, four hours next one was four hours and this one I think is three hours. Uh, and how the staff tabulates that, uh, it's just for or against, I don't know. But it's not quite the same as actually talking to a board. Maybe kind of spoiled up here, our our board of game or board of fish, you can actually go talk to those folks and look at them in the eye and make your proposal and give them your comments. But the federal system doesn't do that. The board is kind of isolated uh, from public comment directly. It it does it through uh, their staff. Which doesn't seem like uh, insulate,
0: which I uh, insulate. That's ben, the word. Ben Mulligan put a you know, kind of they for the state, he's the deputy director, deputy commissioner, deputy commissioner. Yeah. He, you know, he put a statement. <laughs> I thought he said it very well that, you know, the state doesn't feel it's right for the federal subsistence board to insulate themselves from the public. Yeah, um,
1: especially with the impacts. I mean, uh, you can't see it on a radio, but uh, there's a series of maps that the Alaska Department of Fish and Game put out that uh, showed at statehood areas you couldn't hunt, and at that time there were only three areas you really couldn't hunt. In 1959. 1959, yeah. and then uh, in 1980 when Anilka and Inkska, uh were passed, um, another map that took away quite a few areas, you know, the Hard Park and, of course, the Native Corporations got 44 million acres, uh, which is considered private land and so you can hunt on it but you have to have their permission like mm-hmm. any other private land anywhere else and then uh, the, the third series the third map in this series uh shows the uh the game management units where the federal government has placed restrictions uh which is which is only uh, uh locals can hunt yeah. uh and it's uh looking at that map it shows a big big chunk of alaska uh, in fact is this the uh, Area looking at now, I think it's like forty-three million acres. They're looking at uh, setting aside for local harvest only.
0: Yeah, I thought it was, or maybe it was sixty total. I think they uh, they did a maybe uh, they've amended some of that.
1: Well, I think I think we did a little bit of work. Okay, and uh, um, there are there's some private land in there and state land. I mean, a whole game management unit. Yeah. Is that big? But just the federal land that they're setting aside gotcha. is about forty three, forty four. Okay. But good. the game management unit is 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 the bigger number. Mm-hmm. But some of that is you can't hunt anyway because it's private land and other um, lands where that's already closed for other reasons. So that's a that's a difference, I think.
0: Yeah, and this you know this one's kind of the, the highest profile. There are what in unit thirteen there are already some federal lands that this has happened on and it's closed currently. So it's I mean it's becoming more and more important to curtail this movement. You know, I don't even know I, I'm not even convinced that it's that's that it's purely, you know, local interests that are push that are pushing some of this. I mean that's getting kind of, you know, maybe too tinfoil hat for some people, but um, it, you know, I don't you know, like like kinda like you've mentioned at the talk before, you know, this isn't a hunter versus hunter thing you know the issue is the the federal subsistence board kind of acting outside their authority and that's the way the state views it too so it's right
1: uh, right yeah the state is actually uh in a lawsuit with the uh, federal government right now in unit 13 mm-hmm. for caribou and moose being cut off and the state's uh, main tack as i understand it is that um they're saying that we, which we mentioned earlier is that the federal uh, the state of alaska has authority to manage game in alaska um, was given to them in the statehood act and we became a state and it was reaffirmed in the anilka and uh the federal government uh, uh continues to usurp that that authority and it just doesn't make any common sense that what they're doing and plus uh the the the, the authorizing uh, statute is a title eight of anilka which sets up the whole the local preference um uh they have far exceeded uh what that what that in our opinion what that uh, statute says
0: mm-hmm. and
1: they continue to you know kind of expand the program i guess they you know they call it government you know federal government creep or federal government overreach whatever you want to call it but it's our thought that they have gone way beyond what the statutes authorized them to do
0: yeah now and we're you know we're seeing more efforts for it there's some southeast areas that have proposals for the annual board cycle not a special action one but right. for deer and then this this one around the hall road for sheep, which, you know, it doesn't, the state, the state still formulate. I just recently saw the actual memo that was submitted for that, that request. So there, it's going to be a while before, you know, wheels got to turn before the state gets their official statements out and, and whatnot. But, you know, and one common thing is in, I'm just reminded this by reading. You know, I was recently recently reading. Uh, I mean, I talk about that Alaska's Wolfman, the Frank Glazer book. Right. Reading some of the his old stories in outdoor life, it gives some perspective. And talking to some guys I know that have been around a long time. Um. Yeah, I don't know where. Well, one thing is is predation. You mentioned how the the Fed, the feds have basically curtailed the state's ability to do predator control on any federal land. And in all of these, you know, what, especially with this one, it's saying, Oh, we, you know, the arguments, we can't get caribou because non-local hunters are diverting them or, or whatever. And they talk about there being a lot of predators, but no one, no one even, even, even symbolically pushes the feds on, on predator control. Even this, this sheep one reading through that, it mentions two or three times wolf predation, you know, but no, no effort—not even, not even a symbolic effort—to try and and introduce that into the equation. And uh, you know, I think that's often maybe minimized or, or overlooked, or or. But you read back. I just reading this story about caribou that uh, from Frank Glazer, and you know, it was published in the fifties. But he's talking about he talked about a wide range of over forty years, where when he was first up here in here talking about when. They figured it was half a million, heard a half a million caribou would winter right by Healy. And he talked about all these caribou herds that basically, and then he said all this almost suddenly large amounts of wolf, like the wolf population exploded and just wolves were everywhere suddenly. And then they noticed a huge crash. I mean, he said they, I think he said the official number for caribou in the state of Alaska in 1949 was 160,000 total. Wow. <laughs> and then that's i think that's the time frame that they cuz he was a, a federal predator control agent and he said that was about the time frame that they the the US Fish and Wildlife Service started had biologists with keeping track of all these herds and doing um, intensive predator control you know involving these herds and by the mid to late 50s i think they had you know he talks about the 40 mile herd being 40,000 animals in the mid fifties, yeah. you know, rebounding from that quickly. And, you know, I mean, we've seen how it works there. It's, it's frustrating when, when this obvious factor it, 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 and predator control, isn't everything, but it's a factor talking to people, you know, guy, one guy in particular that has been around, you know, since, uh, since the sixties, I think is when he, he came up here and just used to hunt all before it became a hard park used to hunt, All of this, he actually, the guy responsible for the sheep proposal, he said he took him to get his first sheep. Mm. Um, But he talks about the Western Brooks, which you know the Brooks in general has seen a a decline, and they closed the Western Brooks for sheep hunting a few years ago. You know his take on it, you know for what it's worth, is that a lot of a lot of where those sheep were wasn't was kind of marginal sheep country, and that but in the you know years ago they were so. All the, every all the outfitters up there. You said they took several hundred wolves a year from a lot of these drainages and, and areas, and then you know once that all stopped, stopped as soon as they made it a park. It's been you know the uh, gates of the Arctic National Park. The sheep had just been on a steady decline in that that Western Brooks. You know that's just one guy's take, but yeah. um, trying to gather a conglomerate of perspectives, and you know it's just not always. What it's it's sometimes frustrating.
1: We got to admit, I think our, our state uh, board of game has done a real good job as far as yeah. you know predator control. They've had some pretty innovative predator control programs. They took a lot of heat, yeah, especially from down south. Um, but uh, bottom line, uh, that they have worked, like um, unit, yeah. unit thirteen and some of the areas that uh, north of Anchorage that uh, they had some uh, a lot of predator. Uh, we're limiting the. Uh, the, the moose populations, I think they did a pretty good job.
0: Yeah, because you know, there was some bear stuff, you know, some bear predator control in those areas, real intense. And I think the areas where they where they have been able to do it, been you know, where the feds, quote-unquote, have allowed them to do it, you know, on state land, it's it's shown, it's it's done really well. You know, I mean, the 40-mile herd, they did it for seven years, I think. You know, every spring they'd go out, and they'd take uh, – I don't know what the numbers were, but I think it was several hundred wolves a spring out of that 40-mile country. And after six or seven years, whenever they stopped it, you know, the caribou had exploded up to forty or 50,000 animals, whatever it is. And there's just as many wolves as there was when they started.
1: Yeah, that's the way it works. Really. Also, I also read an article that uh, um, bears are a pretty good predator on, on moose, mainly moose and, and caribou also. Yeah. And they were saying that in some situations are actually worse because uh in the springtime um uh a wolf you know has a den and their their pups stay in a den, and they have to actually They're uh,
0: limited to that area maybe
1: limited to that area yeah they can't they can't expand out where you know a bear just takes his comes with it and uh, just you know looks for where the food is and um, if, uh, they can't, they can't move as many miles to, if they want their cubs to survive and they can only stretch out so far. So they said a lot of times that, uh, you know, the, the bears, the black bears, especially the grizzlies are much more of an impact, especially on the moose calves than uh, the wolves are.
0: Yeah, no, I, I would, I hundred percent believe that, um, you know, the air kind of the area I've been, uh, hunting shoot grizzly bears since they, they, since they, they started allowing you to shoot them over bait which is really the only practical way to get them in that area. Um, the moose numbers have just ex- exploded. It
1: makes a big difference.
0: You know, it, just going from on regular boat trips throughout the summer and, and bear season from seeing almost no moose, you know, maybe one, two a summer to seeing one trip round trip, I saw 29 moose, I think that, were not, and I, I didn't count the ones that I thought I might have seen on 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 the right, way out. Right. Um, now it's, I, and it and it's not that you have to totally. You don't. You're not totally wiping out the bears. I think there's just as many grizzly bears as there was. But when you're taking the bears that are, good, you take a few bears that are good at killing calves. Yeah, makes like a big difference. They, I think those studies they did showed that some of those grizzly bears would kill. Thirty to fifty calves a spring, yeah, just in a matter of two or three weeks. Yep,
1: makes a big difference. Absolutely,
0: you know, and yeah, yeah, over over consecutive years, if you can get X percent increased percentage of survival, you know, it's gonna do good. And there's other factors too, but that's that's a pretty. It's one of the few things we can sometimes do to have have an mm-hmm. input on it. We can't do anything about the weather. Um. Weather or stuff like that, but that's something we can.
1: Yep, exactly. Agree with that hundred percent.
0: But uh, I'm trying to think what other. What, so I got to ask you, if 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 you don't want to tell the, the the background of this, that's fine. How how do you how do you get to the point of having lobster dinners and, and ice cream <laughs> at, at Moose Camp? <laughs> oh, you must have talked to some
1: folks here in Fairbanks. No, so.
0: that's my my. Uh, my my buddy that that had that conversation my buddy Frank that had oh. he's been on the podcast a bunch has has a he, he's the one that told me we, we even out at our moose camp he's t- talking about how oh how can we
1: <laughs> Well, we had a uh place I hunt a little small river off the Yukon um which used to be my secret hunting place but somehow going to the supreme court twice and having a, the river named about 10,000 times not so secret anymore yeah. but there used to be just two groups that hunted it, uh, and we would kind of coordinate. We'd come early, and a, a group from Fairbanks came in second. We'd always have an overlap of two or three days, and uh, as traditionally do, we asked the uh, guys to come up to our camp for dinner. One year, and then the next year they said we'll invite you, and so they kind of brought something a little extra. And then next year uh, we invited them, and we kind of tried to up the ante. Yeah, uh, and we one time we had. Uh, Uh, actually bought a 24-pound turkey and actually cooked it in a 55-gallon drum, took all day to cook it. Uh, And uh, uh, we had uh, cheesecake and mashed potatoes and regular Thanksgiving dinner. And uh, next year, uh, they brought uh, live Maine lobsters. (laughs) So (laughs) we we had a discussion. He said, you know, we can't up at very much more than a 24-pound turkey and uh, live Maine lobsters. Maybe we just kind of go back to what we normally eat. <laughs> so, <laughs> but it was, that's part of, uh, you know, the camaraderie you you, you yeah. enjoy in hunting, um, You're meeting other folks on on the rivers. And um, it was, uh, we always enjoyed our time with them as a group from Fairbanks and uh, still have contact with them occasionally. And it's uh, that's kind of the Alaska way, I think. Maybe even deer camps down south people do that. So it's a, kind of a tradition to have a, the fellow hunters come to your camp and you know give them some hospitality and a you know beer or something and chat about tell lies about hunting yeah and it's uh it's always a good uh a good 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 thing to do
0: yeah no it's generally the the you know spirit of people up here is pretty pretty generous and you know the way it was kind of I mean, probably not very long after cuz I seem to get myself in sticky situations not long after I moved up here <laughs> uh which I still do sometimes but you know the the mentality of you know always stopping to help someone cuz next time it might be exactly that's it might a, be me um a lot of running running rivers and you know it's something's eventually going to happen where yeah, you need help
1: yeah that's uh um hospitality and and we're helping the other person out in Alaska something that. uh really common that maybe is even unique to Alaska and you see somebody uh, stopped on a river or, you know, look like they have troubles, you, you always stop. That's just the way Alaska is. Yeah. Hope it always continues to be that way.
0: Yeah. And even, even uh, things that some strike some people just, they can't wrap their mind around it is uh, just the principle a lot of people are generally, at least, you know, in the, my stomping grounds are pretty good about not messing with your stuff, you know, You know, you you see some gas jugs left here or something, piece of equipment there, you know, generally people don't, you know, are not going to mess with your stuff because you, you know, you know, someone might, that's there for a reason and someone's going to eventually need it.
1: Well, it could be a life or death situation too, or them getting home or not. And where we hunt, we're, we're as much as uh, 75 miles from the nearest uh, boat launch. Mm -hmm. And, uh, if you end up having trouble, uh, You try to have some backup, you know, extra parts and that kind of thing. But, uh, um, and you do leave gas in places where you can make sure you can, when you come back, you've got enough gas to get back to your, the boat launch. And so I think people realize that and, you know, there are a few jerks out there, but I think at least in Alaska, they're, you know, few and far between.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. So uh, is, would you say, would you say moose hunting's your, your favorite or do you have one?
1: Oh, my favorite is sheep hunting. Sheep hunting. Yeah, that's kinda like a like a drug addiction. <laughs>
0: yeah, I hear you there. I can't complain. No, I'm,
1: I'll be I'll be seventy seven this year. I went uh I went last year. Uh, went up I had a, a permit for the toke area. Oh. But uh last year
0: was a bad year to have that oh, permit. Yeah,
1: really bad one and in in addition, I was doing some scouting by myself. Went up a river called the Robinson River. Mm-hmm. I went up there, I think about you no know, 24 miles or so with my hovercraft and my jet boat or my uh, airboat. Went up there two different times. And anyway, it was a week before hunting. I was scouting areas. Went up the Toke River. Went up the the Robinson, and kind of looking for a place to go sheep hunting and where I I'd, I'd do well. And got all the way back to my my boat trailer, and my uh, the hovercraft was right next to my boat trailer. I was going to get out. Just after running this up this river, and it's pretty hairy because it was high water, lots mm-hmm. of waves and stuff. And I tripped and getting out of my hovercraft, a little bar on, and I caught my foot on the bar and they caught my second foot on the bar. Oh! And uh, fell and I actually uh, uh, broke my kneecap in half.
0: Oh! Ouch!
1: All the way, all the way across, but didn't go all the way through. I had an X-ray oh. like like two days later, and I told the doc that I was going to go uh, sheep on. He said, No way. He said that uh, if you go sheep hunting with that, it's it broke you know it's broke all the way across, but not all the way through. That if you put uh, uh, weight on that with a pack, that it's gonna gonna snap it, snap yeah. it, and you're gonna be have your
0: like it scored a piece of sheet rock or
1: exactly, something. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so I thanked them for advice, and a week later I went sheep hunting, <laughs> so, and uh, I got in there, um, and uh, I got to my base camp and where I was going to hunt from, and. Looked at my calf, and it was about the size of a soccer ball. Oh. And I'm thinking, this isn't right. <laughs> yeah. And so I said, well, maybe I better get it out. So I had to boondock down a um, a river about I think seven and a half miles to get picked up by an airplane. And um, that was my last sheep hunt. But uh, sheep hunting, I think, is different than um, any other kind of hunting. Being up in uh, the high and lonesome and mm-hmm. spotting and stock, and you know, camping up in the alpine, uh, there's just nothing like it. But Moose hunting, uh, actually, probably elk hunting is my second. Yeah, and then third is probably moose, but uh, sheep is by far uh, top of the pile. And I think uh, a lot of Alaskans up here uh, um, would would probably agree with me. Nothing like like hunting sheep. I a lot of sheep hunts that hadn't been successful, but uh, didn't make any difference. Still had a wonderful time.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I'm coming off one where we we got our butts kicked last year too. Mo- you know, mostly weather and circumstance, but yeah, I uh, which your elk reminds me too. I want I want to ask you if you have it. You know, tell me maybe about a memorable sheep hunt you have. If you have time, if not, that's no big deal. What's what do you think is better, moose or elk meat? Elk meat. Elk meat. That's yeah. You think?
1: Yeah. Uh,
0: ah, I was hoping you'd say moose. <laughs> uh, well, I
1: like elk meat. I go Montana, Montana every single year. Um, and uh, uh, I hunt on the fog neck, I went a yeah. logging operation on there. Um,
0: now I've heard, yeah, it's some, yeah, we can wrap, yeah, we can wrap up, no big deal, okay. But uh, yeah, no, I've been well, Frank Schultz, who my buddy or he who you met, he's he's had quite a bit of a fog neck elk, and he said those are. He said, "On I mean, his his opinion, that's that's better than moose. You know, I I got I got my first elk in New Mexico this year, and it tastes really good, but it's uh, a little tougher than most moose. But I'm sure that's it's good. It's good regardless. I just yeah. like to say moose is my favorite, or not my favorite. Sheep is, but yeah,
1: depends where you know. That, like I say, I just, I just like uh, calling in the the elk and course yep. calling moose is the same thing too. So that's pretty cool.
0: Yeah." Anyway, yeah, well, you're getting buzzed, but man, I th- I appreciate you taking the time to sit down and uh, and chat, and it's good to good to hear your account of things, and good to good to finally meet you.
1: Well, thank you. I really appreciate chatting with you, and and uh, happy hunting season to you next year.
0: Yeah, you too. And uh, for the listeners, all you know, do do my best to keep you informed on this uh, these special action caribou and sheep issues as I can as they as they come up so if you enjoy the podcast appreciate it if you leave a good review on iTunes or whatever platform you listen on and tune in next time thank you